the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning. You are in absolutely cracking voice this morning. That was fantastic. It was great to hear you sing praises to God. Thank you very much for encouraging everyone that's around you to praise. It was great. Okay, so this morning we're going to start something new. We've been in Romans chapter 12, if you've been with us for the last six or so weeks, and now we're starting a new teaching series entitled Come and See. It's a series that's based in the Gospel of John. Now, as I've been just planning this alongside the program team, um, I've come to a realisation that this is probably going to be the longest teaching we've ever undertaken at Belmont. This is going, it isn't going to be one long continuous series, so don't panic. We're going to make some stops along the way to do some other things as well. Of course, we need to celebrate those occasions within the Christian calendar, of course, like Christmas and Easter as well. But it will be long. It is going to be quite a long series. So just buckle up and enjoy it. That's what I say. Anyway, the 4th century bishop, theologian Augustine, is said to have commented this. Whether he did or not is open to debate, but... He said that the Gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child not to drown. I happen to think there's a great deal of truth in that statement, whether or not Augustine made it, because John's writing is on one level really, really accessible. John's Gospel is the second shortest of the four accounts of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that we find right at the start of the New Testament. If you're going to sit down with the intention of reading all of it, well, you discover that it only takes you about two hours to do that. So, if it's so short, less than 16,000 words in fact, how come the Gospel of John over the centuries has attracted disproportionately more attention, I think, than Matthew, Mark or Luke? What is it about John's Gospel that theologians and commentators find so intriguing that they can't stop writing about it? Well, I think to start answering those kinds of questions, it's worthwhile commenting on why it is in the first place that the Bible contains four gospel narratives and not one. John's gospel was the last to be written. And it's quite possible that John had copies of Matthew, Mark and Luke available to him when he wrote his own. Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, collectively known as the synoptic gospels. That's a term that just simply means that they share a common perspective. But as we'll discover a little bit later, they don't share a common audience. But John's gospel is really, really different. For instance, John doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' storytelling. He doesn't tell us anything about the way that Jesus told stories, parables, to teach truths about God and about his kingdom. Neither does he talk about Jesus driving out demons, for instance, or does he talk about him healing lepers? So many of the really familiar stories that we know about Jesus that we find repeated in the other three Gospels don't appear in John. And the main difference, I think, is simply this. Whilst the three synoptic Gospels focus in majority on what Jesus said and did, John wants to take his readers a step on, a step further to explain what Jesus means. 
Now, that's something that's borne out by John's own words that we're going to read a bit later in the Gospel. Here is John's reason for writing. This is his rationale, if you like. Chapter 20, verses 30, 31, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is John's reason for writing his gospel, his sole reason for writing his gospel. And some of the very early Bible commentators and theologians were really quick to spot what John's writing was all about. Clement of Alexandra, for instance, this is what he wrote, this is what he had to say. John, perceiving that the outward facts had been set forth in those other Gospels, urged on by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, composed a spiritual Gospel. And John's reason for writing is undoubtedly invitational. He encourages his readers, as they look at the Gospel, to find out who Jesus is. There is this invitation to come and see, which is why we have taken that title for this whole series. There's an invitation to examine the life of Jesus through a different lens than mere storytelling. And so it is that John's invitation is something that he draws each and every one of us to do, to come and to meet him. But there's something interesting about that second verse that I quoted. The predominant tense used in verse 31 is a present and continuous tense. Now that means that we can legitimately translate the verse literally as, but these things are written that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by going on believing, you may go on having life in his name. So that means whether we're approaching the gospel for the first time or whether we're approaching the gospel for the hundredth time, the same invitation holds true. It's an invitation to come and see. But before we look at the opening few verses from chapter one, I'd like to invite Lizzie and Kath onto the stage. Kath is here to tell us something about how meeting Jesus has changed her life and how, as a result, she now has this desire to come and see, to discover more about who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, hi, good morning. Um, I'm Lizzie, and this is my friend, Kath. Um, good morning. Kath and I became friends on the last Alpha course that took place here at Belmont. And, um, Kath, I'd like you to tell everyone just a little bit about that experience of coming and seeing and meeting with Jesus on Alpha. Yeah. Morning, everyone. Um, so before I started Alpha, I did actually attend Belmont. Um, I'd been coming through the children's groups, and then I had this urge that I did want to come, and I wanted to um, bring my children especially but it felt like I was going through the motions. Um, I didn't really have many connections um, or a real relationship, but through Alpha, that really changed. Um, it was an amazing course. Um, it gave you the space um, 
and the time to think about your relationships. It gave you the people. Um, it was really good to have um, support, to ask questions, to have some questions answered. Um, and I went from being a bit like not knowing what I believed to having a relationship with Jesus that is part of my relation, you know, my week, part of my day-to-day life now. Um, so yeah, it was it was really good. It was life-changing. Uh, yeah, I I know I was there. I watched it happen. <laughs> <laughs> it was really cool, though. It was really cool. So you've got this relationship with Jesus now. Do you know everything? Have you got the no, you've just you've totally nodded your head like, no. No. Could you talk a bit more about that, please? Um, so definitely still at the early stages, definitely a novice. Um, but when I come to Belmont now on a Sunday, it's very much different. I can engage, I can think about... Obviously, I was thinking before, but I, I, it really is a deeper thought that's what's going on. Um, and I've got more relationships within the church, people that I can go to to ask for support. Um, I really feel the, the strength of the church working for me now. So your experience is one of coming and seeing and of meeting Jesus. Um, It was really amazing. Um, Thank you. Is there anything else you want to say? No. (laughs) If if you are sat there and you're not, you've got questions um, and you haven't got anywhere else to answer them, I would say the Alpha course was a really good starting place. It felt really friendly and really welcoming. Which segues nicely to my invitation this morning. Um, we're going to run a, what we're going to call the Alpha Experience on Tuesday the 28th of June at 7.30. The Alpha Experience would let you come and experience what Alpha is like. Because I know that inviting a friend to come to something that you've no idea what it's like is quite intimidating. So I wanted to help make that easier for you. So on that Tuesday evening, you're going to arrive and there's going to be tea and coffee and general chat, just like on a normal alpha evening. Sometimes we have a meal. We can't manage it this Tuesday, but on the 28th. But we're going to have some coffee, we're going to have some cake, some tea and chat as we normally do. Then we'll watch the first alpha video together. And then just like we would normally do on an alpha evening, we'll start the discussion after the video. That would be just like what would happen if you came in the autumn to the Alpha course. So I know that if you came this time to the Alpha experience, you would understand what it was like and it would perhaps be less intimidating to invite someone in the autumn. But there might be another group of people who might think, well, actually, I'd really like to come on the Alpha course. Maybe I could come on that Tuesday evening, experience what it was like, and be even more excited about coming on the Alpha course later you'd be absolutely welcome too on the Alpha Experience evening. And there's a third group of people. Maybe you're thinking, I'm definitely not at the place that I could invite my friend to come to the Alpha course in the church building on a Tuesday night for whatever reason. I have an idea. The way the Alpha course is arranged, you can get the videos really easily and play them in your house on your own telly or your own computer. I can help you with all of that stuff. If you have some friends who would never dream of coming here to an Alpha course, maybe you could run a mini Alpha course in your house. I have loads of time to help you work out how to do this. And you might want to come to the Alpha Experience evening to begin to think through how you could run a mini Alpha for some of your friends in your house. And there's one more reason why you might want to come. 
we would like some more people to be part of the Alpha team who host the Alpha course and make it a place which has been so welcoming and so allowing to let people ask questions and meet Jesus. If you're thinking, I'd love to be there, I'd love to watch that happen, please will you come on the 28th, please will you find out what it's like and if that's a place where you could serve as part of Belmont. Thanks very much. Right, if you need any more encouragement, just go and grab Lizzie and I think um, she'll probably call you a little bit more. Come on, let's do it. It was great fun. Ulfa, uh, I think in the spring was probably the largest course we've run for quite some time. It would be good to be able to beat that. It's not about numbers, but it is about invitation and about coming and seeing. Okay, let's turn our attention, shall we, to the opening five verses of John's Gospel. Uh, we're going to read the verses together. They're going to be on screen. It'd be, probably be helpful if you... Uh, can turn to them on whatever device you're using, whether you have good old-fashioned traditional Bible in front of you or you're using your phone or whatever it may be. I'll just give you a moment to find it, then we're going to read the verses together. I promise you we won't be going quite this slow through John's Gospel, but we will be um, taking our time as we look at the stories that John presents. Here we go then. Very familiar words probably to many of you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And it is with these staggering words that John commences his gospel. Who's John? Well, John, of course, had been one of Jesus' closest disciples for almost three years prior to Jesus' trial and crucifixion. He'd stayed close to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'd stood at the cross in the company of Jesus' mother. He'd been the first to arrive at the empty tomb on that first Easter morning. And he'd witnessed both Jesus' transfiguration and ascension. And now, about 50 years later... John puts pen to paper to write down what he knows to be true about Jesus. Now, many commentators, you'll discover, refer to the first 18 verses of John's Gospel as a prologue. But it's probably more accurate, I think, to describe them as an overture. Now, if you were to look up the definition of the word prologue, you would get this in your dictionary. An opening to a story that establishes the context and gives background details, often some earlier story that ties into the main one. And of course, there is a sense in which that definition really holds true for the beginning part of John's Gospel. But John chapter 1, 1 to 18, not only looks back, it also looks forward. Because rather like an overture from an orchestral score that introduces an opera or introduces a musical, we get to hear the very first notes of all of the major themes that John will later expand for his readers throughout the entirety of the book. We hear them all within this first section. Many commentators have the opinion that John wrote this at the end. After he'd written the story... He then summed up everything that he wanted people to know and wrote the prologue and put it at the start. 
It's worth mentioning that John was writing at a time where there were several factions within the church that were particularly antagonistic. They were actually antagonistic towards him personally, but they're also antagonistic towards the message of the gospel. Some groups were teaching that Jesus couldn't possibly be God. They were teaching that he wasn't divine, whereas others were teaching the opposite, such as the Gnostics, who were denying Jesus' humanity. But both groups found common ground in their joint resentment of John, because John was the only living disciple left. He was the only one who could and did, as you can read in his letters, have that annoying tendency of refuting their teaching by stating facts. And facts, as we'll discover, that he routinely corroborates through his own eyewitness account and, of course, through the eyewitness account of all of his friends. Now, over the past few years, there's been a growing trend within cinematic storytelling to create origin stories. The latest Pixar movie, Lightyear, being the most um, current example of that genre. And the purpose of an origin story is to provide often quite specific insight into a character's personality, into a character's backstory, so that we can better empathise and understand the actions and the motivations of someone who previously we had only limited knowledge of. Now, each of the writers of the three synoptic Gospels chose different origin points for their separate accounts of the life of Jesus. I'm sure you've noticed that. Mark chose to connect with his Roman readers by starting his Gospel right in the thick of the action with the story of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. A story, of course, that's set in Roman-occupied territory. Matthew chooses to connect with his Jewish readers by very helpfully tracing Jesus' family tree back to Abraham, back to one of their most revered patriarchs. Luke connects to his non-Jewish readers by taking the story of Jesus all the way back to Adam. In order, of course, to highlight the amazing truth that the good news of Jesus is for everyone. Now, I'm sure that John wouldn't have been critical of his fellow writers since they all had good reason for starting where they started. But for John, it's not good enough. For John, he says that the origin story needs to go further back. It needs to be further expanded. It needs to go right back to the beginning. And it's impossible, isn't it, of course, for us to fail to notice the similarity between the way the writer of Genesis starts to open the account of creation and the way John chooses to start the account of Jesus' life. The opening phrase, in the beginning, back in Genesis 1, announces the unfolding events of creation that we, of course, later discover only happen through the power of God's word and the action of God's spirit. God, we learn through the poetic language of Genesis chapter 1, speaks creation into being. This is what we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light 
and there was light. There are so many similarities, aren't there? So many things to tie up with those two things. This is what Tom Wright in his commentary, John for Everyone, tells us. Whatever John is going to tell us, he wants us to see this book as the story of God and the world. Not just the story of one character in one place and time. This book is about the creator God acting in a new way within his much-loved creation. So it is, of course, that John's Jewish readers would immediately have noticed, as we did, the similarity between his opening phrase and the start of the Jewish scriptures. But not all of his readers were Jewish. Not all of his readers would have spotted the link. After all, John was writing his gospel from Ephesus, where the majority of his readers were non-Jewish. They, had been, they would be far more familiar with Greek philosophy than they would be with the Torah. So John chooses to directly include them. He addresses them directly through the inclusion of the word logos, or word, as we have it translated for us. Heraclitus, the Ephesian philosopher whose ideas and writings many of John's readers would have been familiar with, had used the Greek word logos almost 600 years earlier to describe what he and other philosophers believed to be the force of reason that governed the universe. So logos, according to Heraclitus, held everything together. It brought order out of chaos. And although Heraclitus said it was something that was unknowable, it was something that was worth pursuing because it was both logical and reasonable to assume that it existed. But John has something very different then to say to his readers, whether Jewish or non-Jewish. In the opening verse of chapter 1, he tells them that the divine reason that Heraclitus talks about, the thing that actually Heraclitus groped for in darkness, isn't a principle at all. It's a person, and it's none other than Jesus Christ. I don't know if any of you or, or many of you are on Twitter, the micro-blogging site. It often um, contains tweets that end up going viral, that just end up with huge responses and just a lot of profile. And sometimes the, the reasons why they go viral isn't necessarily the way that the Twitter user who posted the tweet might have wished. Sometimes words take on their own form, don't they? Uh, this is what one tweet from um, the account at Forum Atheist posted some time ago. This is, of course, by way of ridicule, of slight mockery. Christianity, belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, and to help us, one light year equals approximately 6 trillion miles, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. That's how at Forum Atheist decided to sum up Christianity. And the tweet attracted a whole host of responses, and loads of them were from Christians. Father Matthew Snyder, a Roman Catholic priest, replied very succinctly. He only used three words, and he said this. Amazing, isn't it? 
Now, for us, of course, words are fundamental, aren't they, to the way that we communicate our inner self. When we speak words, our thoughts and our feelings, our ideas, our reactions and our emotions literally, quite literally, find voice. We communicate ourselves through our words. And as a result, we allow ourselves to be known. I'll say that again. We communicate ourselves through our words. And as a result, we allow ourselves to be known. So right at the beginning of his gospel, John makes this earth-shattering statement. John begins exactly as the Bible begins, but he adds something. Or rather, he adds someone. He puts Jesus right in the middle. You see, John has come to this realization that God's revealed mind and will, his word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, as he tells us later in the chapter in verse 14, as Simon will talk about next Sunday morning. Jesus came to reveal God's mind and will. Jesus is God making himself known. God communicated through his words in order that he could be known. As we know from the creation account, of course, God's word brings both life and light. In John's understanding, life and light are intimately connected. The light that floodlit the primeval darkness that the writer of Genesis so poetically describes comes directly from the eternal and self-sustaining life of God. Later on in the Gospel, in chapter 5, we read these words. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And that life is his to give. So just as the eternal word, Jesus, created physical light that shines throughout the universe... As the incarnate word, as God in human flesh, Jesus radiates the glory of God and brings spiritual illumination to all of us who place their faith and trust in him. Now, as we're going to discover as we go through John's gospel, there are 24 references to light in the first 12 chapters alone. And there's 39 references to life. Light and life are two of the dominant themes that this opening overture just invites us to look at. For Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. Now, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but when you flick the switch as you enter a dark room, the light from the light bulb instantly banishes the darkness. The battle between light and dark, in that battle, the light always wins. It is irresistible. We only perceive darkness when we turn ourselves and look away from the light. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And with this theme of darkness and light or creation and new creation... This is what the Apostle Paul picks up on as well. Familiar words again, I'm sure, to many of you. This is what he has to say. 
For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. As we close, I want to go right the way back to the beginning. Think about the words of Augustine. He remarked that John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child not to drown. John invites us to come and see. He invites all of us to discover afresh for ourselves who Jesus is. And my hope, of course, is that we'll accept that invitation. We'll accept that invitation to come and see. But let's not be content to simply splash about in the puddles. God invites us to put our whole selves in, as Johnny reminded us last Sunday morning. We have the opportunity over this long series to immerse ourselves in God's word. We, all of us, are being invited to swim with the elephants. But it's up to each and every one of us whether or not we accept or decline that invitation. Megan's going to lead us in prayer in a moment. Before we do that, I'd like to read some more words from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. John isn't the only New Testament writer to put Jesus right at the very heart of everything. These are the wonderful words we read at the beginning of Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything, he might have this supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray together and then Megan's going to lead us in some further thoughts and prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonder of it. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be able to open it and read from it, to enjoy it. But help us, we pray, not just to paddle in the shallows, but help us, we pray, to swim with the elephants as we engage fully with all that you have to tell us, all that you have to reveal about your son, who is both life and light, who is eternal, who is knowable, who is the one that we can come to, who we can call our saviour. Help us, we pray, as we do just that.